uh, this morning as we think about technical difficulties, let's realize that that ultimately the technical difficulties we need to be concerned with have nothing to do with a projector or a microphone or whatever it may be, but those that go on in our hearts. As also you think about technical difficulties, we could relate that very directly to our topic today, and that is the topic of marriage. Many of us have experienced technical difficulties in our marriages, one way or another. Some of those technical difficulties have led to an end of the marriage relationship. Maybe some of you have experienced a very tragic reality of divorce. And you may say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm honestly thankful it's over, but it's still tragic. It still leaves scars. It still hurts. Some of you experience technical difficulties, and you've stayed together, but you know what I'm talking about. A few weeks ago, we began a series called The Making of a Christian Family, and I asked you on that very first Sunday, five weeks ago, to list one word that describes your family at this particular stage, whatever stage of life that may be. In my family, we have three young children and one on the way, and our word is toys. That is our word to describe our family. They're everywhere. We cannot keep up with the amount of toys that they put on the floor. That's just the way that it is. We can't do it. For others, you may have a different word to describe your family. In thinking along the same way, I want you to think of one word this morning that would describe marriage to you. Now, you may be in a marriage, and you may, at this particular stage of life, have a word that describes your marriage. You may not be in a marriage, or you may just be thinking in general, but what would the word be that you would write down that would say, this is the one word that I would say describes marriage? If you've got your bullets and you want to play along just for a second, flip it over, and, and you'll see a way you can follow along in the back. If you'd like to take notes, we'll make that possible for you. And if not, you can just pretend like you're paying attention and writing things down, and that's okay. When I was a youth pastor, uh, there was a guy who every week he would come up and give me his bulletin at the end of the service and would have a picture of me on it. He drew a picture of me throughout the whole service, whatever I was wearing and whatever and so on. So maybe you do that this morning, keep yourself occupied, whatever it may be. I hope you'll pay attention to the Word of God because it'll change your life. But, uh, but anyway, in the back of your bulletin, write down that one word. What would it be if you were to say, and to be honest, right now I would describe marriage as this. So just one word, or maybe a, a short phrase. I did a search, and of course, uh, you know, on the Internet, it's interesting what you, what you come up with different articles and so on. I did a search, you know, one word to describe marriage, and you, know, you get things all over the place. You know, some folks who, who describe it as work, you know, that's one word that was recurring, work. Well, that's just, I don't know, there's some, I, I, I agree with that. Well, marriage is work. You have to work at it. There's no question. But boy, if that's your one word to describe it, oh, that's just, I guess it's reality, but it's just not real helpful, not real promising. It'll work. You know, I mean, um, you know, it's like a full-time job plus some, but you don't get time and a half, you know, when you're working overtime. I mean, that's just the way it is. And other folks describe it as commitment. You know, they think of marriage and they think, well, it's, it's commitment. It, you have to be committed. And in fact, many studies will tell you, many studies will tell you that it is commitment rather than love that makes a marriage work. Because love, obviously, in our society is defined by so many different things. It comes and goes in our feelings. But commitment is what will keep the love there. And that's, that's what they're talking about, I guess. Other folks, maybe you describe it as torture. I don't know. You know, it's, it's uh, one word is just torture. Oh, goodness, it's a tough being married. You know, if, you have, if you've had a tough marriage, then you probably have some negative words that come to mind. If you, you've experienced divorce... And, and you've gone through that. If your spouse was unfaithful to you, whatever it may be, I mean, you probably have a jaded view in some ways of what marriage is. Maybe you've, you've lost a spouse recently. Your spouse has died and you're now widowed. Uh, maybe marriage to you now takes on a, just a totally different connotation. For some, they listed on these searches that I, that I found that marriage is a joy. 
And I really believe that marriage can and should be a joy. It should not necessarily just be viewed as work or torture. It can and should be a joy. So if you think about how you would describe marriage, I want you to, to listen as I read this article that was posted by the Associated Press on the website of the Courier Journal back in June. And this will give you an idea of what culture's attitude is toward marriage. I give a little bit of commentary at the end of this, but I want you to pay attention and, and think along with me. This is not a joke. This is not something that is that is that far out. This is an Associated Press article, and this, I believe, really nails on the head what society, what our culture, American culture, thinks about marriage and how we approach it. Here it is. It says, you're young, you're in love, you trust each other. No need for a prenuptial agreement before you tie the knot, right? Not so fast. You with the rose-colored glasses. As wedding season gears up, it may be time for some unsentimental planning before you walk down the aisle. Demand for prenups is increasing nationwide as more people become aware that they're not just that those things are not just for the rich and famous. Roughly 40% of marriages fail, after all, so there's nothing disloyal or cold-hearted about preparing for contingencies. If close to half of all marriages are going to end in divorce, it makes sense to plan for it, says Marlene Moses, president of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. That's interesting. A uh, prenuptial agreement is simply a legal document that describes how property and assets brought into and acquired during a marriage will be treated if there's a divorce. It isn't essential for everyone. A couple entering a first marriage with few assets, debts, or other accentuating circumstances can certainly or generally forego the expense. With two, what, with two lawyers recommended, one for each person, even an uncomplicated prenup can run two to $3,000 or more. The cost goes way up toward explaining why only three uh, goes a long way, rather, to explain why only three to five percent of married couples have prenuptial agreements. Uh, they are the most popular. The most popular uh, are among baby boomers, the forty to sixty range, who have more money and can afford to pay for adequate protection. Uh, let it, yet, it can pay off, obviously, in the long run. Uh, here's a quote: "It has the potential to save tremendous amounts of legal fees in the event of a divorce," says Robert Maloney, a financial planner. Uh, while awareness of prenups has grown because of high-profile celebrity divorces, it remains the touchiest of subjects for couples to discuss. If one partner mentions the prenup, the other's reaction is inevitably, you don't love me. Uh, people need to view this as a routine part of business of getting married, she says, this, this person quoting here, along with planning for budget, spending, and children. It's just a piece of paper that sits in a drawer and protects them in case they don't have a happy marriage. To broach the subject in a non-confrontational way, here's the advice, one person uh, might uh, schedule a financial discussion, say for 7 to 9 p.m. one evening, followed by a romantic date afterwards. The business chat, I'm not joking, this stuff is on the paper. It's right here, it's on there, it's written in an article. The business chat can include talk about what kind of budget they're going to have, whether they need separate checking accounts, savings goals, spending limits, and yes, a prenuptial agreement. So who really must have one? Here's the advice that the column gives. Here are seven situations in which a prenup is advisable. Number one. When significant assets are involved, such as a home, stock, or retirement fund, both sides need protection from the consequences of any breakdown in the marriage in this instance. Number two, when there are children from a previous marriage. Anytime children are involved, there's an extra incentive to protect their interests. Most states will give their surviving spouse up to half an estate, leaving the children no say. This could be at least partially avoided by using a prenup. Number three, when one partner owns all or part of a business. In a breakup, the attorney for the other partner will likely go after a share of the family business. And number four, when a, one partner is much wealthier than the other, a one-sided money situation 
can easily be cause for jealousy or later a legal dispute. Number five, when one spouse-to-be is much older, the older partner may not be able to recover to provide for his or her retirement if the assets are split 50-50. Number six, when one partner will be supporting the other while he or she pursues a degree. A $100,000 debt for grad school could easily outlast the marriage. And number seven, when an inheritance is expected. Even without big money involved, some see a prenup as critical for any marriage that is not the first for either side. In any second or third marriage, I believe it should be required, says this person who was quoted. Now, let me tell you this. We look at that, we hear those things, and I read that to you, not for uh, shock value or anything like that, but to give you an idea of this is what society looks at and views as, as just normal in, in marriage. That you need to prepare for contingencies, it says. That if, if, if up to half of all marriages end in divorce, well, it's really stupid not to prepare for the fact that, well, you know, probably it's going to end. This is what society thinks. Now, some of you are repulsed by that. Some of you say, are you kidding me? You know, come on. You know, let me, let me preach this sermon this morning. I'll tell some folks about marriage. I'll get up there and tell them, and, and I, I appreciate that. Others, if you're in my stage of life, probably in your 30s, maybe up to 40s, and younger, this is not news to you in any way. I'm not surprised by this. I wish I were. I wish I could say that I'm shocked. I wish I could say I'm, I'm just deeply disturbed by this. I, I'm not. I'm sort of used to that in society. Our society has, has gone an opposite way from what God has defined as marriage. We've redefined it. We've, we've altered it, at least in our own minds. And we've come up with things like this to prepare for the inevitability, we think, of the ending of the marriage. That gives you an idea of what marriage is to society. You have your one word there. Maybe you've listed commitment or joy or work. Society or culture may list temporary, contingency. Be prepared. Something like that. This morning, I don't want to focus, though, on what you and I have to say about marriage. I certainly don't want to focus on what society has to say. We don't take our cues from our gut feelings. We don't take our cues from society. We take our cues and we take our marching orders, so to speak, from God Himself. And so this morning, I want to look at what does God have to say about marriage. If you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to Ephesians. The verses this morning, unfortunately, will not be on the screen, speaking of technical difficulties. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn there, regardless of what translation you have this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. This passage has been our focus passage for this entire series and will continue to be. So let's, let's read it as we get going this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the Word. He did this to present the church to Himself in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. 
In these verses, obviously, we get a picture of what an ideal marriage is to look like. Here and elsewhere, we see that marriage is important to God. It is not off His radar screen. It is not secondary to Him. It is not something that's sort of, well, whatever. It's certainly not the way that society views it. It is important to God. Marriage is vital in all aspects of life. If you are in a marriage, you know how much your marriage affects or has affected in the past every area of life. If you've gone through a divorce, you know how difficult that was to get up the next day and want to go to work. You know how difficult it made it relating now to a split family. It is a difficult thing. Marriage affects every part of life. But marriage, according to God's design, is meant for our good. It is meant to be beneficial. It is part of our happiness, part of our personal fulfillment, part of our growth. And this morning, I want to focus on a couple of things that we see here in this passage, and we'll move to another passage in just a second. But in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as what? To the Lord. And then in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as also who? Christ loved the church. There is a vertical aspect of marriage. There is a responsibility that husbands and wives have not only to themselves and to each other, but ultimately and first and foremost, to the Lord Himself. The wife is called to love husbands, love their husbands as to the Lord, not because of anything else, but because that's the responsibility she has before the Lord. The husband is to love his wife just as Christ loved the church. And so we look at the first level of responsibility and accountability in marriage, and that is to God. So that's our focus today. I want to want you to think about, as I just mentioned, how in every, as in every other aspect of life, God meant marriage for our good. He understands us. He knows our issues. Uh, he provided marriage then for our good, not to weigh us down, not for it just to be viewed as work or, or uh, a drudgery or, or torture or anything like that. And if, it, if marriage is done His way, then it will be a wonderful experience. Now, some of us are very cynical this morning. You say, yeah, right. You don't, you don't have any clue about my home. I mean, we, we're doing, we're just, we show up to church, we're doing the best we can. I mean, it's anything but wonderful. Let me tell you this. If, if in, a, in, a, in a scenario where both of the people in the marriage are doing marriage God's way, that's the big if. But if both people in the marriage will do marriage God's way, it will be, because God has ordained it to be, it will be a wonderful experience. Will it be perfect? No. Because you're dealing with two imperfect people who are going to sin, going to mess up, going to hurt one another's feelings. But then we come back to what is God's design, what does He want from us, and then we begin to pursue that path again. It can be wonderful. Here's the guiding principle for today that we'll unpack as we move forward. Marriage provides what we want only after we honor what God wants in marriage. Marriage provides what we want only after we honor what God wants in marriage. I hope you'll write that down. I hope you'll get that. I hope you'll memorize that. Because it's crucial. It's vital. It's not something I thought up. It's not some catchy phrase from me. It is based upon the Word of God. Marriage provides what we want only after we honor what God wants in marriage. On the back of your bulletin, you see a little bridge. And you see the little phrase there on the left-hand side down toward the bottom of the bridge. You are here. You've been to the mall or somewhere and you get lost and you go to the little kiosk and you look up the map and it says you are here and there's an X. You can kind of get oriented then. Okay, okay, now in relation to J.C. Penney, here I am. Dillard's is over here and I've got it, all right? And so, you know, you are here. Picture yourself. Think about today. Be honest with yourself about where you are today in your marriage. 
where you are today in relation to a marriage relationship. Now, some of you say, we know I'm really just the beginning. We're just getting going. You know where you are. Some of you say, well, we're, we're kind of in a tough spot right now. Our marriage is sort of mm-hmm, not doing so well. We don't want anybody to know. I don't want you to call me out, but we're just not doing well. Some of you say, you know what? My, my marriage has ended. Uh, it, it's, it's over. One way or another, it's ended. Some of you say, I've not yet entered that stage of life. Wherever you are, just picture that. Here you are. You are here. There's your X there on the, on the paper, on the map, the mall. There are certain things that you want out of life. And if you think about marriage in particular, there are certain things you want out of marriage. So if you picture yourself, here you are, you're over here, and what you want is somewhere on this side of the room over here. Now what you want, what we all want, are, are, is very simple. You can list a bunch of things. I've listed two there on your bulletin. What you want is over here, and it's called happiness and fulfillment. Those are the things that you want out of life, out of marriage, whatever it may be. What you want is over here, happiness, fulfillment. So you're on this side. What you want is over here, marriage included, uh, happiness, fulfillment. You're looking for satisfaction. You're looking for joy. You're looking to, to feel a sense of completion. You want some meaning in life. And that's all over here. And the question then for us today is how do I get from where I am to what I want the best way possible? So if we're over here and we want these certain things out of life and out of marriage as we talk about that in particular, how do I get from there to here and accomplish what I want? Now, I'll tell you this. I don't believe it's inherently wrong to have your sight set on some things that you want out of life. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be fulfilled in life. We are not meant to go through life as Stoics saying, well, I'll just show up and I'll just figure life is going to be miserable because, you know, that's just the way it is for a Christian. Life is hard for a Christian. There's no question about that. But there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to be fulfilled, with wanting some happiness in life, with wanting to experience life as good as God can offer it to us. And so if you're over there and what you want is over here is happiness and fulfillment, how then do we go about getting there? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. There are shortcuts that we take. Many of us go from over here and we try to avoid the bridge that's there on your bulletin and we just try to go straight for the happiness and fulfillment that we're looking for. So emotionally, we, we want fulfillment. We want pleasure and delight and so on. All these areas of life, emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, and so on. So emotionally, what we'll do is we'll jump at the first opportunity to feel love. You ever known a young person like that? Somebody just bounced around. It doesn't matter. Just somebody shows them some affection. Somebody cares about them in some way, and they're so desperate, so needy for that. That they latch on to this person, whoever it may be, that you know is not any good for them, that you know is not the right person, and yet they're so desperate emotionally to have that fulfillment, to have that happiness, they latch on to this person, and disaster follows. You see how we take shortcuts. Socially, we take shortcuts. We have this desire built into us for companionship. We are meant to live in community with other people. You are not, if you are uh, this, this renegade, I'm my own person, I don't need anybody, you are not living according to the Scripture. Now listen, I deal with those tendencies, I'll just be honest with you. And God has to bring me back and smack me around a little bit and say, look, you are not a lone ranger. You are not meant to be the only person that, that is in your life. You need other people. We all are built with this desire for companionship, but the, the shortcut that we take quite often to get to the fulfillment, to get to the happiness that comes out of those social relationships, sometimes those shortcuts, those desires override our better judgment. And we latch on to someone who is not the right person, who has no biblical values whatsoever, only because they give us that friendship, that companionship we're looking for. Obviously, we have certain 
physical desires and physical needs, in particular relating to the sexual nature. And we jump from over here to what we want, this fulfillment, this happiness through premarital sex, through extramarital sex, through cohabitation, and so on. Uh, studies will show you, by the way, on the issue of cohabitation, and it has permeated our world today. An overwhelming number of, of couples will live together before they get married, and I'm not here to beat you up over that. God uh, obviously has a lot to say about those kinds of issues, but I'll tell you this, that statistically speaking, it shows that cohabitation, far from helping your marriage down the road should you move toward that, actually hurts it down the road. Folks who cohabitate, who live together before marriage, statistically speaking, uh, fail in their marriages more so than people who do not. I just... Practically speaking, it doesn't work. Not, not only does it not honor God, but it does not work practically speaking. These shortcuts really all add up to us settling for less than what God desires. Shortcuts, in order to get from where we are to what we want, particularly in marriage, do not work. So you go back to our guiding principle today. Marriage provides what we want only after we honor what God wants. And so we have a bridge to cross. We have this bridge to get from where we are to where we want to be, and that bridge that we all must cross is the path of God's design and God's benefits. God's design and God's benefits. Now, obviously, we look at that and we understand that if we're going to have the marriage that God wants for us, we must do it His way. We must not take those shortcuts. Let me give you sort of the, the reversal of this. We've listed on the, on the bulletin there God's design and benefits. I want to give you the benefits first. You want fulfillment. You want happiness. That's what we're aiming toward. Let me give you a list very quickly of these benefits. Now, if you've got your Bible still open, I want you to turn with me over to Genesis chapter 1. Go to the very beginning. Just close the Bible. Open it back up to the very beginning. And I want to show you from the very beginning of creation some of the benefits that God designed for married people to experience. And these are not an exhaustive list. This is certainly just the, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. But what are the benefits? If you follow God's plan for marriage, what will you experience? The first that I've got listed for you today of eight is this, and it's meaning. The first is meaning. Now look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. This is right after God has created the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And it says in verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. There was to be, in their relationship, a meaningful purpose for why they existed, for what they were to be about. God says, now that you're together, here's what I have for you. Be fruitful, multiply. Fill the earth. Do you see the meaning? They weren't just to hang out and say, well, I guess this is it. They had a purpose in life. Every marriage has a purpose, something God wants to accomplish through that couple that God did not choose to accomplish with you on your own. He wants you to be in a marriage relationship. There's meaning. They had a purpose in life. Anytime they were to come back and say, God, why are we here? They would go back to this particular saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They knew their purpose. Marriage provides some meaning. Not only meaning, but it also provides adventure. And you may say, come on. What are we, kids? I mean, we're looking for adventure in life. But you think about that verse. Be fruitful. Multiply. What does it say? Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. 
You picture Adam and Eve. They start out in the Garden of Eden. We have no idea how big it was, but it's evident when God says, fill the earth, when He says, go and multiply, they weren't limited to just staying in the Garden of Eden. There was stuff out there they were going to find and explore and experience together, and it was going to be incredible. You picture that in the Garden of Eden, and one day they decided, let's, let's wander a little further. Let's see what's out there. Let's figure out together what this world is all about, and let's go do it, and let's see what's there. You picture them coming upon a mountain range and looking at it and taking all that in, and then trying to cross the sea to get from one continent to another. You picture the adventure that God designed for marriage to be, a fun-filled, adventure-packed sort of relationship. Now, does that mean that you have to travel and see all the continents and all that kind of thing to have adventure in your marriage? That's not the point. Understand that the timeless principle is God has designed marriage to give meaning to life, to give adventure to life, to be a fun journey along the way. Not only that, but pleasure is involved. Marriage, according to God's benefits, includes pleasure. In in chapter 1, verse 29, God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. These will be food for you, for all the wildlife, and so on. Then you look over in chapter 2, in verse 25, both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. You see the plants for food. The idea that, that when God finished all of his creation, he said it was very good. The idea they had no shame. There was pleasure all around for them in the original design of God for marriage. Not only pleasure, but also companionship. Companionship is also included. In chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Adam standing there. Of course, you get two different, you get two complementary, I shouldn't say different, two complementary versions of, cre- of creation, chapter 1, chapter 2. In verse 18 of chapter 2, then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is like him. What did God say? It's not good for, for him to be a lone ranger on his own, just doing his own thing. He needs somebody with him. Some of you have gotten married, and now you've realized, my goodness, how wonderful it is to have someone in my life that I can live my life with, I can count on to be there, and we'll share the meaning, we'll share the adventure, we'll share the pleasure of life together. It's God's design. It's by no accident that God put one man and one woman together who are, are equal in His sight yet different to, to, to be companions together for life. That's one of the lines that I say every time I do a wedding. That God designed you to be companions together for a lifetime. Companionship. God wants you to have those relationships. Not only that, but intimacy. We go back to chapter 2 again. It says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, verse 24, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Intimacy is also a benefit that God provides in marriage. Uh, Adam and Eve had, had intimacy with one another. Uh, they had emotional intimacy. They bonded together. They were one together emotionally and mentally. They had physical intimacy, implying the sexual nature of the marriage relationship. They also, you see over in chapter uh, chapter 3, rather, Genesis, they had intimacy not only with each other, but with God. God came walking right after they had sinned in chapter 3. God came walking, it says, in the cool of the day. Sort of as a debriefing, hey guys, what'd you do today? Here comes God walking in the garden. And they just talk to him. He's an integral part of their relationship. You can picture this happen on a regular basis. You see their union. They're bonded together emotionally, physically, socially, and so on. And they're bonded to God, talking with him, having him be involved in every aspect of the relationship. You have meaning, adventure, pleasure, companionship, intimacy. Not only that, but you have needs met. You have needs met. In chapter 2, verse 23, 
right after Eve is brought to Adam, he utters the very first words of poetry ever recorded. And the man said, verse 23, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He looks at Eve and he says, You meet every need that I have. You are the perfect human counterpart to exactly what I lack. You complete me. Now there's a great movie that says that, alright? But you understand, when he looks at her, his first response is, My goodness. She's perfect for what I need. Adam had needs to have a companion. Eve was created to meet those needs, and together they mutually met the needs of each other. Marriage meets those mental needs, physical needs, emotional needs, social needs, and even spiritual needs. Marriage is there for our spiritual benefit. So we have our needs met. Not only that, but we have growth. Again, in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother. Picture this in your mind and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. You have this leaving of an old life and the starting of a new, a growth toward who you can be only with that marriage partner. Many of you say, you know what, I remember who I was before I got married. I was immature, and I was selfish, and I was this. And now don't elbow your spouse and say, you're still that way. Don't tell them that this morning. But you understand, you have become now, if you're in a marriage, you've become probably a much different and much better, probably more spiritually and otherwise mature person than you ever could have been on your own. That's what God has designed marriage for, is partly for growth. And then, finally, one of God's benefits is evangelism. Now, this seems a little bit odd to include here, but it's true. Back over in Ephesians, some of you stayed there, so you're good. Others will turn back there in Ephesians chapter 5, and verse 32 says this, Paul reflecting on what he's just said about the marriage relationship and the role of husband and wife and how they relate to God and so on, and the comparison of Christ and the church and all that. He says, this mystery is profound. Now, mystery doesn't mean that you can't figure it out. Mystery means here's something new that's being revealed. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Paul draws a direct parallel, a direct correlation between the marriage relationship and the sacrifice and the love and the giving and the selflessness that's, that's to be there in a marriage relationship with the relationship that Christ has with His church. What's the relationship Jesus has with the church? It says he, he loved the church and gave Himself for her. Helping her, cleansing her, dying for her. And so we have this picture of evangelism in every marriage that is one of love and sacrifice and commitment. It shows to the world in a very real way the love and faithfulness and commitment and sacrifice that Jesus has for His church. And the tragic news is this, that every marriage that is fractured, every marriage that ends in divorce, whether it's something you could control or not, this is not a heavy on you, not a guilt trip, but it is in a real way a negative picture of Jesus Christ. Because it shows a level of unfaithfulness on the part maybe of one of the spouses. It shows a, a lack of commitment or a lack of sacrifice, whatever it may be that caused it. So we have all these benefits. And as a bonus, you see, you are here and happiness and fulfillment over here. As a bonus, as you cross God's bridge of His design and His benefits, guess what else God throws in? Happiness and fulfillment. You tell me which list you would choose. Would you choose happiness and fulfillment by themselves? You know, that's really what I've got my sights set on. That's what I want. Or would you choose, along with happiness and fulfillment, meaning adventure, 
pleasure, companionship, intimacy, having your needs met, growth, evangelism, along with the things you've already got your sights set on. Which list would you choose? You are probably no fool. At least I'm hoping you're not. And the natural conclusion is, well, it only makes sense to choose all of that. It only makes sense to say, you know what, I want the happiness and, and fulfillment. And hey, listen, if God's going to throw in all the other stuff, well, good grief, I'll take that too. I'm not stupid. I want it all. But the truth is that many times we fail to see the guiding principle again that we will get out of marriage what we want only when we honor what God wants. If you want God's benefits, all that list of stuff, there are no shortcuts. You have to follow His design. So we've given His benefits. We've listed all the things that, that God has. Now, now quickly, what is God's design? God's design is simply one word. And we won't unpack this completely. We wouldn't have time to do that. God's design is simply one word, and I'll give you a couple of elements of that and we'll close. God's design is this, and it's covenant. God's design for marriage is covenant. Ephesians chapter 5, you go back there, and it says, As Christ loved, gave Himself, joined Himself to the church as His own body. There was a covenant that was made. Not a contract with a loophole. Not going back to this article that I read earlier about having a way out, just if there's a contingency. What, what is involved in a covenant? If you think about the elements in a wedding ceremony, you'll get an idea about what a covenant is to be. Now think back, maybe to when a time when you, you last attended a wedding, or maybe your own wedding, and you think about the different elements that were involved. Now I've got about two or three weddings that I'm going to be doing next year, and, and one of the things I'll work through with each of the couples is, okay, now what do you want to be a part of the wedding? And I'll give them some options on their vows. You want to write your own vows? Here, here's some examples. Here's a, a template. Uh, what about the exchange of the rings? What, what would you like to say here and so on? There are certain elements that are involved. One of the first things, though, is the bride walks down the aisle with her dad or whoever's giving her away. I'll be standing there, and I will say to the congregation that is, that is there, we are joined in the presence here of God and all these witnesses, of God and our family and friends, something like that. So the elements in a covenant, you think about God's design, one of the elements is that it is before God and others. It is before God. It is in front of God. He is to be involved. I always make sure in every single wedding ceremony that we make sure that we understand God is the one who is most important here today. He is the one who's brought this couple together. He is the one that we are accountable to. I heard a story recently where a guy who went to a wedding, it was a wedding of a friend, and, and the, the friend that later called him several years down the road and said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm leaving my wife. I, I don't want to be married anymore. This is, I'm done. And the guy said, no, you're not. I was there. I saw you get married. I remember what you said. You're going back to your wife. You're going to be faithful to her. Now, I hope you got a relationship with somebody like that. I can put you back in your place and you can put them in their place. You understand what I mean? But he said, no, no, no. You, you swore. You made a covenant. Not just before this invisible God that you couldn't see who was there today, that day. But I tell you what, not only before him, but you made a covenant before the people. And the guy said, no, no, no. You're going back to your wife. And the guy helped him work through it. And eventually they worked things out. But a covenant gives you the idea in this marriage relationship, this wedding ceremony, that in a sense that the, the married couple is not only married to each other, but married to God and accountable to the witnesses that were there that particular day. So it's before God and others. Not only that, but it's an unending commitment. It is an unending commitment. You think about the elements that we say in the wedding vows and exchange of the rings. What? Till death do us part. 
as long as we both shall live. In sickness, in health, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, whatever it may be. We say these things promising, covenanting to have an unending commitment. Not a contingency. Well, when I don't feel like it anymore, you know, imagine a wedding like that. I mean, just think about it for just a second. You go to a wedding and they read their vows to one another. And the wife says to the husband, I, will, I promise to love you and cherish you as long as you don't leave the toilet seat up. I mean, think about it. You know, as long as you always make me feel like I'm a princess and I'm, I'm the, I mean, think about it. What if you, what if you went to a wedding like that? What do we, what do they say though? No, they don't, there's no contingency. I, I promise to love and cherish you, to have and to hold from this day forward, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live till death do us part. It's a one-sided commitment. There's no contingency. If you do this, then I'll do this. It's a one-sided commitment. You get the idea that it is an unending commitment. God's design for marriage throughout the Scripture is permanent. It's a covenant, not a contract. It's not like that article that I read. I'll tell you this, there are certain weddings that I will not do. Uh, if, if you're interested in getting married and, and you, you have any inclination that you'd like me to do your wedding, I'd be happy to talk with you about it. I'd be honored to even be considered. But I'll tell you this, I will not do weddings where the couple comes in with a prenuptial agreement. will not do it. Why? Well, God's design has no bailout plan. It has no contingency. It has no, has no parachute. You're in it for life. I will not do a wedding. Now, that's not a threat. It's just the way it is. I also won't do a wedding if the people are on different spiritual pages. They must both be walking with God in a real way. Does that mean you're perfect? No, I can't be the judge of that. But at the same time, I want both people to be committed to God's design for life and for marriage. Why? Because if they're not on the same page spiritually, what's going to happen? At some point, one person is going to go this way and the other person is going to go this way. How do you reconcile that? Boy, it takes a strong, strong person who's committed to God to make sure that can stay reconciled. Very difficult thing. Now, I'm not saying in any way, of course, Paul makes mention in, in, in 1 Corinthians about those who are, who are married to someone who's not on the same spiritual page. So stay with them. Try to win them. And by all means, if you're in that kind of marriage, keep going. Keep trying to win them as best you can. Go for it. And, and you know, I, I also will, will not do a wedding for a couple that will not submit to any kind of counseling whatsoever. Oh, we, we got this. We're good. You know, young couples like that, you know, they just, they don't listen. I'll tell you, when, when young couples come to me for marriage counseling, they don't listen to a word I say. Not a single word. They're in love, and that's all that matters. They don't listen to a word I say, but at least they're going through it. You know, I just don't make them go through something like that. But it's an unending commitment. And not only that, but it is the highest priority. The elements in the, the wedding ceremony show that. The bride walks down with her father and is what? Is given away to the husband. Uh, they, they light the unity candle or do some sort of symbolic activity that then joins in a very real way their lives together. And all that is saying, the giving of the bride, the unity candle, the, the unity stand, whatever it may be, is all saying nothing in my life, humanly speaking, is now more important than that marriage relationship. Not my parents, not my family, not my job, not anything else that I do will be more important. It is given the highest priority. Now, all of this covenant-type relationship is based primarily and squarely upon God's covenant with His people. In both the Old Testament and the New, God publicly joined Himself to Israel and to the church in a very public way. His covenant is unending. It is eternal. And He gives it the highest priority. 
So we see all of that. We see God's benefit. We see God's design. And as we think about it, as we close, now what? Well, what do we do with that? You, you've heard the truth. You've seen what God's design is. You've seen what benefits He has. You've seen how to get from where you are to what you want by crossing God's bridge of His design and His benefits. And so now what? I really believe that for some of us here today, the very first step we need to take in our marriage relationships is one simple word, and that is the word repent. Now, that is a strong biblical word. Many of us don't like that in our society today, but it is still true, just like when it was written in the Old and New Testament. It is still true today that many times we simply need to repent. I need to turn from where I'm going and turn toward a new way of living. And maybe in your marriage relationship, you have failed to view it as a covenant. You've viewed it as a contract, and you've threatened this, and I'm on my way out, and I'm doing this. And today, you'd come face to face, not with me, but with Jesus Christ, who says, you know what? It's time to turn around. And maybe today in your marriage, in front of your spouse, with your spouse, whether it be here, whether it be at lunch, whether it be tonight, whenever, you say, you know what? Let me tell you something. This may shock you, and we've got the defibrillator ready to revive you. But I want to say I'm sorry. I have not been doing this the right way. We've been married for however long. Maybe you've been married for five years, ten years, fifty years. I don't know what it is. But you say to your spouse, you know what? I'm sorry. And I repent before you and before God. And with God's help, I'm going to make the incremental changes I need to be the spouse that you need, that God has designed me to be. I firmly believe that for many of us, that is the most important and most powerful step we could take. And as we do that, we'd return to the covenant that God designed marriage to be. We'd say, you know what, I'm accountable not only just to myself, but I'm accountable to God and to others who were there at the wedding. I'm accountable to them. I'll remain committed for life. I'll stick it out. I'll work through it. I'll take the attitude of Jesus Christ and sacrifice and give of myself and do whatever it takes to hang on to this relationship, and we'll work together to make that happen. Maybe you'd say that. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I realize that that my marriage relationship has not been the highest priority. But today, beginning today, I will place my spouse and give my spouse higher priority than any other human relationship. Higher than my children, higher than my boss, higher than my co-workers, higher than my friends, higher than my desires, my activities, whatever it may be. Today, I will commit to give my spouse the highest priority over all other human relationships and activities. And in so doing, I will see and will approach marriage from God's perspective. I really believe that as individuals, as couples, as a church, that we must be about the reclaiming of marriage for the way God designed it to be. We must be about those things. If we are to reclaim society, not just in America, but in our world, if we are to reclaim that, if we are to gain ground for the kingdom of God, it will be based largely on things like the sanctity of marriage and helping married people stay married, helping young people to be in biblical marriages, helping folks to do marriage God's way. We have to be a church that's about those things. We have to be individuals and couples that are committed to those things. You see yourself here today. What you want is over here. Happiness, fulfillment. The way you get that plus all the other things that are far and away more than happiness and fulfillment, what God has designed, His benefit, is to follow that bridge, follow that path of God's design and His benefits. You get out of marriage what you want only after you honor what God wants.
And it's not impossible to do that because God is not asking you and I to do anything that He has not already done for His bride. He sacrificed. He loved. His commitment, His covenant is eternal. So today, I pray that you'll join me in saying, I will see and approach marriage from God's perspective. I hope you also see the level of love and commitment that Jesus Himself himself showed in going to the cross to die for each and every one of us. The Bible says in John 3.16, the famous verse, Whosoever believes that Jesus, the Son of God, went to the cross, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, whosoever, whoever believes, will not die, but will have eternal life. I pray that you place your faith, your belief in Jesus Christ today. He is the only way for salvation. I want to close this morning as we have closed a little bit, uh, similarly to the last couple of weeks. And I want to pray for the marriages that are represented here. I realize that you may be here by yourself today. You may not have your spouse with you, and that's okay. But if you have your spouse close to you, maybe you haven't in a long, long time, and this would be your first step toward reclaiming your marriage for God. But I'd like you to grab their hand. Your spouse is next to you. If your spouse is not, please don't feel in any way odd or anything like that. But as best you can, grab the hand of your spouse. Now, I know for some of you, you're freaking out. We haven't done this in a long time. Okay. All right. It's all right. You're like, we can hold hands in church if you're married. All right, it's okay. Nobody throw you out. If you're not married, if you're maybe on your way to that, or you say, you know what, that stage of my life is over, and I realize that may not happen again for me, I don't know. But I know that this applies to us in a a variety of ways. Most directly, obviously, to the folks who are married today. But you have people in your life that are married and that need your prayers and your support, that need to understand God's design, God's benefit. So this morning, I want to pray for those who are married, and I pray that, that you'll join me in doing just that, praying for your own marriage or for the marriages of those around you, that, that we would return to God's design, that we would be committed for life, that we would have as highest priority that spouse, that we would be a church where that happens. I know many of you are probably struggling ups and downs in marriage, life throws a lot of curveballs. Take this opportunity. As I lead us in prayer, you pray for your spouse. You repent before the Lord. And then later on, don't let it stop there. Go to your spouse. Repent before them. They need to know you're serious about the commitment that you've made. If you're a parent today, you've got your children with you, you've got a young person in your life, you begin to pray for them. Because let me tell you, it'll be real quick. And you say, you have no idea. Listen, I know it's coming. It'll be quick. We want to raise up our children to enter covenant marriages, to do it God's way. Let's pray together. God, I know today that in a crowd this size, there are a variety of stages of life and stages of marriage. And there are many people today who are struggling with this issue. Or there are many today who would receive guilt from what we've said. Lord, I know that but that's not the point in any way. So God, I pray that you'd help us to see through all of that. To not receive a guilt trip, but to receive the hope that's found in the Word of God. Lord, I pray for those marriages today that, are, that may be struggling, maybe on the rocks, maybe hanging by a thread. Lord, that may surprise everybody if we knew. God, I pray that each person in that relationship 
would be bold enough to repent, to turn away from the old way of doing marriage and turn toward your design and receive your benefits. Lord, may we recognize our covenant before you and before others. May we see it as an unending commitment. May we give it highest priority. Lord, for those who are in pain this morning as we talk about a subject that hurts them because of a tragic ending of a marriage and maybe divorce or the death of a spouse, God, I pray that you would strengthen them, that you would lift them up this morning, that you would encourage them in a very real way. Lord, make us a church that honors marriage the way you do. Make us a people that say we want happiness and fulfillment, but we're not going to go about it our way. We'll, we'll follow the path of God's design and God's will. But make us that kind of people. We pray in Jesus' name.